So, all right. Um, the weather the last month has been amazing for central Indiana. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember, but like three or four weeks ago, it was 98 degrees one day with like 100% humidity. And then the next day it was like 65. And it has been steady for like a month now. It's unbelievable. I've hardly had any rain. It's really been nice. Um, and that should tell us something. I think anybody who's lived here for any length of time knows that fall is here and then winter is coming. And so I took advantage of that. I had Brad Brewer come over to my house and um, remove some rotted boards and paint some things that were I didn't really want to get to or probably could get to. So thank you, Brad, for that. Um, but it's just a reminder that uh, there's a change coming and we should be ready for it. So kind of along with that, I don't know if you guys have watched, um, you know, signs pop up around town, um, maybe political signs, because this year is a semi-election year and um, there's uh, TV advertisements, radio stuff, uh, like I said, signs, but also lots and lots of articles out there. And, and honestly, this is not intended to be a, a political rah-rah sermon at all. If anything, this is more about a warning of that. So um, that's, that's the gist of tonight's, um, tonight's lesson. Anyways, I, was, I really try and pay as little attention as possible. Um, I don't want to be uninformed, but I don't want to be over-informed. So, um, I saw an article online and it said Christian nationalist rhetoric being used in an in, in election, in a congressperson's election bid. And I was like, that's really weird. I don't know what a Christian nationalist is. And so I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go figure that out. This was a couple of months ago. And so the two quotes that are up here, I'll, I'll read them here in a second, uh, is a direct quote from this member of Congress's re-election bid. Uh, they, they had made a speech to a group of people, and this was uh, this journalist followed them, talked about, said, this, this language is Christian nationalist. I was like, man, what does that even mean? So um, that's what I want to talk about tonight, um, is A, what is, what is, well, we'll have a little list here in a minute, but um, how, really, first thing is how political people can um, tread on the Bible and, and try and basically earn votes by saying the right words. And I just want us all to be aware of that. I'm also going to talk about um, how we can kind of interpret the political spectrum, not Republican and Democrat, but how does a Christian play into that? So um, anyways, I want to read these and then we'll talk a little bit more about these things. So again, this is a, uh, a person who is uh, running for re-election and they were giving us a, a stump speech. This was not like a, a lesson they were teaching, this was a political rally type of thing. It says, uh, this person said, it's time for us to position ourselves uh, and rise up to take our place in Christ and influence this nation as we were called to do. Later on, in this, these are direct quotes. These are not paraphrases. Uh, I actually listened to the speech uh, because I, wanted, I, I didn't want to lie to you all. Um, and they, they said these things. Uh, the second, a little bit later, was we know that we are in the last of the last days. This is the time to know that you were called to be part of these last days. You get to have a role in ushering in the second coming of Jesus. If, and I'm going to tack on if you vote for me. So, I, you know, when I hear stuff like that, there's a part of me that I'm like, that kind of sounds right. But it doesn't feel right either. And I'm kind of hoping like, you know, Spider-Man is 
his tingly senses. I kind of hope if you hear stuff like that, you should kind of be like, you know, okay, well, you're saying the right stuff, but, but why are you saying that? Um, because honestly, it just, it doesn't feel right. And so that's what I want to, I want to explore tonight. Um, but these are kind of my goals. Um, the first thing I've already told you about, so we've already been successful. I want you to be able to identify um, political speeches when they try and use religious language to, to, gir- to get your vote, you're probably being manipulated. I'm, I'm probably being manipulated. And we should, we should keep a, raise an eyebrow, a skeptical eyebrow against that and, and just be aware of that. There are, there are a lot of people out there who are doing that. Um, I wanna talk about what a Christian nationalist is because I didn't know. Um, is being a Christian nationalist, by the way, I'm a lazy typer, so CN is my abbreviation because I got tired of typing that. Um, is Christian nationalist. Is it compatible with the Bible? It's basically, is it biblical? That, that kind of that thought, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, is it okay to be a Christian nationalist? And I'm just gonna tell you no. If you get nothing else out of this lesson, it is not a biblical idea and it is not something you wanna be. We'll talk about that um, more here. Um, and then really kind of that's the first half. The second half of the lesson is more of a pivot to, okay, well, how much politics can I have? You know, or, or what should I be involved in as a New Testament Christian? Uh, and I'm not saying that I have all the answers. Uh, I don't, but, I, but hopefully this will get you to think about it and, and maybe see things a little bit differently or, or do some investigation on your own. Uh, and then lastly, hopefully you'll, you'll walk away with this a little bit of, it does matter. You know, Dave didn't just waste, uh, waste my, uh, my time tonight. So uh, as, I, as I prepared for this lesson, I did a bunch of internet research and I bought, a, I bought some books. Uh, the one that this lesson really draws heavily from is something called The Global Politics of Jesus um, by Nyla Seah. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Um, it was a really insightful book, and it's based a lot of the ideas of tonight's lessons come, come out of that. So if you want to buy it, that's great. There's also an interesting um, book called Reviving the Ancient Faith. It's, it's a history of the Churches of Christ um, by Richard Hughes, and there's a few ideas from them. So I want to give credit where credit is due. This is not, these are not all my thoughts. So, um, what is a Christian nationalist? Um, by the way, the person who, we, we read those quotes on the first slide, um, they deny that they're a Christian nationalist. They say they're not, even though the language really speaks to that. So, there's a reason why they're saying no, and you'll, you'll kind of understand that as, as we move through this, but um, Christian nationalist. I put in USA on here because you could be an, an Italian Christian nationalist. You could be... Austria, you know, it doesn't matter, but I'm, I'm using USA because it makes the most sense to us. So, um, but Christian nationalism is the belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take active steps to keep it that way. Uh, it relies heavily upon the myth that the United States was founded as a Christian nation and was singled out for God's favor. Um, Christian nationalists insist that the U.S. was established, and some of this is a little repetitive, but I'm, I'm trying to cast a wide net here. Um, was established as an explicitly Christian nation, and they believe that this relationship between Christianity and the state should be maintained and protected and restored uh, in order for the U.S. to fulfill its God-given destiny. If you hear people say things like that, it's like the U.S. is the New Testament Israel, and as, as Israel of the old is, is, was the chosen nation. That's not a biblical idea. Because if there's a, there's, the Christians are the chosen nation, and we transcend 
national boundary. We'll talk more about this. Languages, I mean, that's, that's the idea of the New Testament. Um, and so when you hear politicians say stuff like this, and it's out there, it's real, I, I mean, I found this stuff, um, then you should be wary about that person and what their goals are, because there's always somebody who's out, even if you're a Christian. So and we'll, talk, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, and then lastly, on here, uh, I've discovered, as I was reading that, especially in that second quote, that's the one that really raised my eyebrows about ushering in the second coming of Jesus. How can, how can you elect someone that's going to force God's hand to say, yep, well, now the situation is right, and now it's time for me to come back, all because Dave Raymond voted for this representative. And it's, honestly, it's kind of, it's really arrogant to think that you could force God's hand into, into coming back. So sometimes you'll hear um, end times theology stuff connected with this, and it should just, I'm just making you aware, it should raise a red flag if you hear people talk about that. I don't think that that's authentic um, Bible-based Christianity. Um, so is Christian nationalism biblical? Um, definitions are really important. I know sometimes we'll have classes where we'll start out with, hey, what is, what do you guys think grace means? And people will shout out, you know, things. And then we'll be like, okay, for the purposes of this class, we're going to use this very narrow definition of, of grace. I'm just picking on that word. It could be anything. If Leanne sent me to the grocery store and said, Dave, get some produce. I could come home with anything, canned, fresh, veggie, fruit. I mean, anything, right? But if she sent me to the store and said, I want you to get organic, whatever, asparagus that's white. They do make white asparagus. Um, they don't make anything. They grow it. But it is, it is, she gave me a very narrow definition of what I sent you to the store with. If, if you have a very broad definition, you can probably back in and say, sure, yeah, this is kind of biblical. But the bottom line is, as most people define Christian nationalism, it is, it is not biblical. Um, it's commonly accepted as a negative term. It is exclusive, and it carries overtones of historical injustice, um, not just in the U.S., but really around the world. Um, so kind of how to break that down a little bit. Christianity basically takes priority over all other religions. Obviously, that makes sense. But then you get into, well, who's Christian? Who's version of Christianity, right? Is it our, our, our I'm, I'm just going to throw out, is, is the Methodists okay, but maybe the Church of Christ people aren't. Like, wh where's the battle? Who's, who's in and who's out? And it becomes a human judgment about what's acceptable and what isn't. Um, nationalism, kind of that side, really defines a nation by a set of beliefs that are man-made. So there will always, no matter how wide you cast that net, there's always going to be people who fall outside your definition of who fits in. Who's an American? Well, we all are. Well, that's not true because in 1882, the state of California and then the U.S. government passed the Chinese Exclusion Act. And until the 1940s, it was law. No Chinese person could immigrate to the U.S. and become a citizen. That's nationalism. Nationalism divides because, and you can go back and you can read, um, I did, I looked it up. You can find newspapers from the late 1800s, early 1900s that say awful things. Um, about how a Chinese person cannot become an American because they cannot be basically assimilated. Their, their culture is so different than ours, they, can, they can't be. It's terrible, it's racist stuff. Um, but nationalism divides and does and says those things. And so, it, it's, Christian nationalism is not a good thing. It's used the Bible not only for that, but it'll use it to support and say things in the past, long ago, that 
slavery and segregation were okay. They used the Bible for their own ends and means, twisting it for what it means. So it's really important to understand the historical context of Christian nationalism and to know that that is not, it is not a biblical principle. Um, it's also, it's kind of an oxymoron. As I mentioned earlier, Christianity says it, it reaches out to everybody, man or woman, um, Jew, Greek, it transcends time, it borders, like everything, and it, it's a uniter, whereas nationalism is, is a fixed construct that somebody comes up with of, hey, this is what it means to be an Italian, or this is what it means to be an American, and it says, you, you fit in this box based on your category, based on your border, destiny, history, whatever that is, and so it's like these two terms, they don't, they're at loggerheads with each other, it doesn't make sense, so... Bottom line is Christian or Christian nationalism is, is not biblical, and if you if you come across that, just just be be aware of it, what that means. Um, so here's kind of where I want to pivot. Like, okay, Dave, I get it. I can't be a Christian nationalist. I don't want to be. Well, what what can I do? What can I be involved with? Or or how can I? Um, how how political should I be? And so I want to talk about three different at the bottom here. I want to talk a little about history, but. At the bottom, the book that I read basically tries to divide, and it's, it's broad strokes and, and big buckets, but three different types of approaches to how involved in politics should I be. I think that we should, well, there's an argument for transformation. We want to we be involved so we can change the world for Christ. There's another one that says, no, we want to run as far away from the world that's evil, as sinful as possible. We want to be, we want to separate ourselves. And then there's this middle ground, um, which is what the author kind of argues for, which is called prophetic witness. And that's not like Holy Spirit, new revelation. That's speaking the truth of God, speaking God's oracles, being a prophet to the world of what is, of what is right. <clears throat> so um, as far as history goes, kind of pre-Jesus, everything was like an Old Testament theocracy. Like it was all bound up together. Um, Jesse gave a really amazing, um, it reminded me, it fit in this morning when he was talking about when, they, when the, the Jewish leaders saw Jesus resurrected, they didn't know what to do with that. They, they saw the miracle, and they recognized that Lazarus was alive, but they were so focused on their power and their control and made, selfishly maintaining that power that they couldn't accept that miracle and the change that was coming. And so that's the problem when you blend that, that theocracy with religion and government is you are so focused on power. We'll talk about this, um, about how governments are focused on, on power and survival and on control, whereas God's kingdom isn't. And so this was, this, up until that time, that was, that was what he dealt with. And I mean, don't get me wrong, there's Greece and their democracy, and you can all make all those arguments. But essentially, before Jesus, it was all theocracy. Um, so from, essentially, I'm, I'm, again, I'm, these are not hard dates, but from Jesus until about 300, the Christians, once they started, they were persecuted. There was about 10 documented waves of Roman persecution. Some of it we read about in Revelation, some of it Paul's references. Um, so from 30 to 300, Christianity existed, but it didn't have any interaction with the state. It was negative. You were killed if you were Christian, or at least it was ambivalent towards it. Like, you know, they were just kind of left you alone and shrugged their shoulders. But then, it's really interesting, about 300, Constantine, you know, the Roman Empire start, is starting to fall apart. And what do politicians do when they're in trouble and they need help? Well, there's this new sizable minority that we've really not tapped before. He has a vision at night and he says, if you follow me, you're gonna win this battle tomorrow. And guess what, he does. And 
then he converts. And so maybe, I don't know, was that like, was that honest? Was, was he really following, you know, convinced that sins needed to be forgiven because of the blood of Jesus? Or was it more a political thing? I don't know. That's between him and God. But, but that changed Christianity at that moment. And so for about 100 years, there's this transition from persecuted, like where they were, they were being killed and thrown to lions and all the stories we, we read about, to they're in control. They're, there's this, they're now the power. And it's amazing that in, eight, in about 80 years, they go from persecuted to persecutor. And there's docu- they, they've kind of got documents where the Roman Catholic Church, or the, the church, whatever you want to call it at that time, they start, within 80 years, they start using the power of the Roman state to go and that sect over there, they believe something funny. We've warned them, and they didn't listen. Go burn their town down. And that's what they did. And so it's just amazing that for 300 years, they were persecuted, and then it was how, how quickly things change. And so really, from about 400 until about 1650, it was almost like this New Testament blend of the king got his authority from the church, and the church got their authority from, you know, and there was no, no real dissent. And that led to some really bad stuff. Um, and the book goes into all that. I'm not going to bore you. But essentially, there was, maybe some of you heard this 30 years war. I know, that's a lot of history. Sorry. Basically, there was this 30 years war in Europe that ended in around 1650. And about a quarter, over that 30 years, about a quarter of Europe killed itself fighting these wars burning each other down, starving each other out. It was awful. And at this peace treaty where all these nations got together and said, we've got to stop this. Otherwise, we're going to kill ourselves over and over again. And so they really tried to divide. That's kind of this beginning of this church and state thought, is we, we cannot continue to have these religious wars. And so that's the, where we live at today. For better or for worse, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that's great, but that's where we are. And so the book offers, for where we're at today, they, they make the argument that, honestly, Christianity is going to flourish when you actually have separated church and state because it allows us to be uh, a witness instead of complicit with the state's, you know, wars and violence. Anyways, it's really interesting. I'd, I'd encourage you to read it. But these three thought buckets here of where, where do you fall uh, are what I want to wrap up on. So what is, what is transformationalism? Um, again, this is really broad so I'm not, I'm not trying to say that you have to fit into one of these. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But it's just, it's just to help us think about where should we be uh, and how involved should a Christian be in politics. Um, but transformationalism approach calls on Christians to redeem or transform their political communities. Um, it's a synthetic view of church and state kind of, kind of mixed together, some more than others, um, to improve the quality of government, to bring culture in line with Christian principles. Okay, I mean, some of this sounds good, right? Um, Christians should participate in government. We have biblical examples of Joseph working with Egypt, uh, Daniel in Babylon, Esther and Nehemiah in that kind of Persian kingdom. Like that's, they, were, they were changing the government, right? Um, Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me. So that means all human government. And that means it needs to be controlled by a Christian. And it should be under our, our power. Um, they see Jesus as a ruler over all physical things based on Paul's uh, words in Ephesians 1.21. All rule, all authority, all power, all dominion has fallen under, that, under, under Christ. So that's, that's kind of where they're getting, where they're coming from. And they see Christians as salt and light to the world by a government, not, not necessarily person to person. <clears throat> and so this really leads to that, that kind of Christian nationalist thinking when it goes too far. Um, if you don't 
get under my tent, then you have no part of, of anything. Um, so a critique of some of that is uh, there's really two passages, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, that talk about the role of government. And <clears throat> it's fairly limited. <coughs> I'm going to apologize to you people for coughing. Um, but the role of government is, is to punish evil and wrongdoing. It is, it is uh, not something, it's not a role that Paul suggests Christians clamor for or should be involved in. Um, and if you think about it, a few verses before Romans 13, Paul's talking in Romans 12, he says, well, you need to leave room for God's wrath. Don't take vengeance. Well, if you as a Christian and a Christian government is in charge of the powers of the levers of who decides what's right and wrong and which, who gets the sword and who doesn't, how are you leaving room for God's wrath? Um, so it's really kind of thought-provoking for me uh, in that regard. First Peter, uh, again, similar thoughts regarding the role of government is to punish wrongdoing. Um, but also a few verses earlier than that, Peter says, uh, if I said Paul, I'm sorry, but Peter says, uh, we're to live as foreigners and exiles. So if you're a foreigner and an exile, how can you be in the government? How can you be in charge of that? Imagine showing up, you move to a new state, and you show up and you meet a neighbor, and you're like, hey, you know, I'm Bill Johnson. Oh, hey, Bill, you know, I'm Dave, or whatever. And, and um, you see a sign, you're like, hey, is that, is that you, political? Like, are you running for office? Yeah, I'm the governor. Oh, okay, well, how are you, like, I messed up this example. But basically, how can you be in charge of something and be a foreigner and an exile in, in the country? You can't be. It's impossible. And so that's the, that's the whole point of that is, we, we can't be both. We're gonna, we're gonna, we can only serve one master. Um, the book of Revelation uh, goes on uh, a lot. Of, there's a lot of ways you can view that, but one is, it's pretty clear, is that um, Satan is in control of worldly kingdoms, and he's a deceiver. And he's deceiving not only um, non-Christians, but he's, he's deceiving us too. And he's the one, um, he's the one who's in control of, the, of, the, of worldly governments. And so, Kind of the, the point the guy makes, and I'm, I'm summarizing this really kind of heavily, but the power of God isn't revealed in a fallen worldly government. It's revealed through the cross of Jesus. It's revealed through the blood of Jesus and our changed lives. We're not manipulating people through enforcing, legislating morality through, um, through our control. We shouldn't become a Christian and then get elected and then try and change things. That's, that's really the gist of, um, of this critique. Um, Mike's going to lead us in a song in a bit, but... We sing a song um, sometimes called The Kingdoms of Earth Pass Away, but the kingdom of God stands forever. And we're going to talk about in just a second when, we, when what, we're going to look at some of Jesus' words. He sets up a two-kingdom approach that was completely new to uh, that Old Testament theocracy. Um, I think it would be naive to believe that our attempts through political reform will have any lasting impact on this world. I mean, just look back over legislation that was huge 20 years ago. We don't even remember it today. And, and the same will be true 20 years from now. Um, we just have to trust um, that Jesus' methods are what's going to make the difference. Think about this. The world calls godly wisdom foolishness. And so I believe that Jesus died for my sins and bled on the cross and his blood redeems me. People who, who are atheists or maybe skeptics would go, Dave, you're crazy. And I'm like, well, that's what the Bible says. People would think, world, that's not worldly wisdom. Well, if we trust Jesus' blood to save us, then we need to trust Jesus' approach to politics as well, which is, even though it, it might be counterintuitive, it might make, make sense, and if we were in charge, we could change it, everything would be great. 
when in reality that's maybe not what we're going to see is, is best. Um, lastly, and I'm probably taking this out of context, but 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked. Um, there's a guy, this Jonathan Fox, who's like a political scientist who goes around and does studies, um, and this is referenced in the book. Um, but basically, he looks at countries that have a very strong blend of, of Christianity like as part of a national identity in like South American, Central American countries, African places. And he writes, he says, when the, um, the church becomes a pawn when that happens. And he says, um, when, when Christianity is co-opted um, and is made like central to a nation's sense of self, then, um, then this happens. The state depends on the church to propagate the message that resistance to the state in any form is sin. And in exchange, the church is granted a privileged political status um, within the state. And so you think about this yoking of two animals, right? We've got a really strong one and maybe a really weak one. It doesn't matter who's who in the example. But when the strong man of the country starts repressing, you're, you're now in bed, right? Like you, Christianity is the official religion of this country. But he starts repressing, well, this journalist wrote an article, so let's, let's get rid of him. Well, this, this guy, this political opposition party, let's go ahead and burn his house down. Christianity is now yoked to that government, and you lose your witness. You become complicit in the violence of the government when that happens. And so that's why it's really dangerous when Christianity becomes uh, tied to the state. We, we're no longer functioning independent and able to call out sin as sin when, uh, when that happens. So you might say, okay, Dave, I don't want anything to do with the government. We want to run away and be as far away as we possibly can. This is the second uh, kind of um, approach. It's called detachment. Um, and this is probably pretty easy to see where this is going, but basically believe that the kingdom of the cross and the kingdom of the world are completely at odds, can't get along, and they should be separate. So my spiritual life is private. I don't, I, the government should have nothing to do with that, and I don't want anything to do. The government's work has no spiritual meaning whatsoever. And so I, we're just completely separate. I don't vote. I don't, do, I don't do anything. And they've got some biblical basis for this. 2 Corinthians uh, 6, 17, come out from among them. Uh, speaking of the world, 1 John 2, 15, do not leave or do not love the world. Basically hate it. They see those as maybe like literal commands. Like, you know what I mean? This is why we don't want to have anything to do with government. And their kind of their model is imagine a ship is the world. And all the people are on board, and this ship is sinking. It's doomed. It's the Titanic, right? And everybody's jumping off, and Jesus Christ is in the lifeboats. And it's our call as Christians to pluck these people out of the water and save as many as we can as the sink is shipping. Or, that's really good, as the ship is sinking. Um, and basically, trying to participate in government of the world would be jumping out of the lifeboat, swimming back to the ship, and trying to repair it. It's, it's crazy to that approach. And so any effort in government is just like arranging chairs on the, on the, the deck of the Titanic. Um, it's, it's pointless. And so you've kind of seen this play out in history, right? The Essenes in Jesus' time, uh, desert hermits living out there trying to get closer to God, separating themselves from the world, um, monastic life in the Middle Ages. Um, and really, you know, we've kind of got communities of belief today that live in very small places. And they don't want to have anything to do with the world because they think it's sinful. Um, is that the way we should be? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, there's several things here. I won't dwell on these too long, but um, Jesus' second temptation was akin to this approach. Jesus is up on the top of the, the temple. Satan's with him, and he says, if you just jump off, God's going to save you. You don't have to do anything. 
it's going to be okay. Jesus obviously says, oh, it's a sin to put the Lord your God to the test. And that's, that's this approach, right? I'm going to completely withdraw from the world. I don't want to talk to anybody about it. I don't want to deal with anything. I'm not going to help anybody because, God, you've got this completely. I don't, I don't have to do anything. And that may sound a little odd. It does to me. It's actually what I'm standing up here talking about it. But the point is, you wouldn't even help a person if they needed help because, well, if it's God's will, God will take care of that person. And so you kind of see the detachment. It doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, you would be putting the Lord your God to the test by doing nothing. Um, bearing your talent for fear of the master. God's giving me so much. If I can't do it perfect, then I might as well not try at all. Um, ignoring the least of these that Jesus calls out. There's all these people that Jesus says, if you helped, you helped me. They're like, well, Lord, you know, when did we see you naked? Or when did we see you in prison? Or when did we see you? If we ignore the least of these and we're just relying on God to completely take care of them, then I think um, that's, that's this uh, detachment and, and not, not wanting anything to do uh, with the world. So anyways, the salt and the shaker doesn't do any good if you don't sprinkle it on your food. So I don't really think this is a, this is a, a big thing for us, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. Uh, I want to spend the rest of our time on this uh, middle ground, uh, this prophetic witness, as the author calls it. Um, so what, what are some of the things that Jesus said? And, and this is really uh, some, some good stuff. So in Mark 12, um, 17, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, things about, hey, this, you're going to pay your taxes to Caesar. And Jesus, one of the greatest responses ever, says, well, whose likeness is on that? And they, you know, they think they've got him trapped. And he says, and they say, well, it's Caesar's. And he's like, well, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things of God. And this author really, he's like, at that moment, up until that time, this concept of government was really that theocracy and kind of blended. And Jesus creates two, a whole new way of looking at it. You've got the kingdom of God, the kingdom of uh, of Christ, and then you've got the kingdom of Caesar, the earthly kingdom. So whether you want to say, you know, uh, there's a guy we'll talk about here in a minute. He calls that the city of God versus the city of man. And how do those two interact? Um, so he, this is a really important, this just wasn't some tax question. This was establishing a whole new approach to, to really separation of church and state is kind of where he thinks this came from. Um, moving on here, Matthew 4, 9. Um, the third temptation of Jesus uh, is really, really interesting. He has, Jesus, he's saying, I can give you control of all these kingdoms through all time if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus doesn't say just no. He also, or he doesn't go on to say, no, Satan, you're a liar. You don't have control over these kingdoms. He never disputes that Satan does or doesn't. He basically says, Satan, you do have control over it, but I'm not going to worship you. Can you imagine, like, imagine, like, the whole idea of a Christian nationalist is to get yourself in charge so that you can have Christian rule in all governments everywhere. This was, like, the perfect Christian nationalist. Like, Jesus could have said, yeah, man, I can, I can have control of all these governments. This is, this is going to be great. That's not what Jesus said. Not only did he say, he admitted that Satan has control of these governments, but he's also saying those methods... They're not going to work. That, that control of government when forced um, through earthly kings doesn't push the kingdom of God forward. So it's, I think it's really important to, to think about that. Because, um, man, for me, I'd be like, yeah, I can, I can be in charge of everything. That's, I, I can make a lot happen. Um, but what was the cost? Uh, Luke 12, 14, Jesus in a much smaller setting 
um, you know, he's, he's teaching and a guy yells from the back, hey, you know, my brother to split the, the, the inheritance with me the right way. And Jesus says, no, um, who appointed me a judge over you? Jesus refused to exert his control over the, the realm, the domain of Caesar. It's kind of interesting. And Paul and Timothy, they go on. Um, he uses a military metaphor, um, civilian affairs, don't become entangled with that. Basically saying, don't be distracted by the, by the things of this world, whether they're political or whether they're um, you know, civilian, however you want to view that. Um, and then lastly, if, if Jesus, when he was talking to Pilate in, uh, right before the crucifixion, he, Pilate could get it, right? That his kingdom wasn't of this world. Um, but if it was, then why stop Peter? You know, he should have created swords and been tossing them out to everybody in the garden. Here we go. You know, this is, this is our moment. But that's not what he did. Put the sword away. That's not how you advance the kingdom of God. So really kind of some interesting, um, some interesting things there. So you might say, man, you know, well, we don't want to have anything to do with government. We don't want any government. Well, I, the argument is not that we don't need it. Um, there's a quote there, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. We're all sinners, right? Everybody is. So we need some kind of control. And this is where I was talking about the, the two kingdoms. This guy, this Augustine, I think he wrote a couple, 300 years after Jesus. But he expounded on that two-world concept. And so he basically said there's a, there's a city of God, which is an earthly thing that we have to deal with while we're here. And then there's the city of, um, excuse me, city of man. And then there's the city of God, which is the, the, the Christian kingdom. And so he, his argument was that the primary function of Caesar's realm, if you will, is to maintain order and restrain evil. It wasn't to proselytize. And when, when they do it right, the city of God flourishes. So think about it. For 300 years, there was nothing but persecution for Christians, and it didn't stamp us out. And, and so why do we believe that we need to be in control of government to flourish today or at any point in time? It, it's not really, it doesn't line up. Um, there's a 20th century thinker, uh, this Morgenthau guy, great quote, um, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but basically his suggestion was it's impossible to be uh, a successful politician and a good Christian. And so the whole point of that is we probably need to be careful ourselves, not, not getting too wrapped up in either, but if a, if a politician seems to be really successful and so, call himself a Christian, you might want to scratch your head and kind of, hmm, what kind of guy is that, in the, you know, when the doors are closed? So, um, anyways, we're called to be Christians first. Um, there will always be others who are going to rule and maintain that order in the city of, the city of, of uh, man. We don't need to worry about that because I think God's got that under control. So, this is getting down a little more narrow here. We're, we're wrapping up. Um, how should we live in light of this? Um, you know, Jesus overcame the world. Uh, through the cross, by the cross, by his blood. He didn't overcome it through an ocracy, an ism, an archy. Uh, the list goes on and on. Um, and we will overcome the world by the same thing. We're just going to ride his coattails into heaven There's, by, by his blood. It's not political change. He doesn't call you to be a Christian and then go join whatever. Second um, Corinthians 5.19, Paul tells us we're ambassadors for Christ. And so the ambassador bears the message of another country where they're really from and where our true loyalty lies. It, it's, um, it's, it enables us when we're an ambassador to call out sin and to shine a light on injustice. Like we're not beholden to that government or to the place where we live. We're beholden to Christ's kingdom. Um, we, can, we can talk about people who are forgotten 
um, that, that the, the city of God or the city of man government has forgotten. And then lastly, um, James 129, you know, acceptable religion is to care for orphans and widows keep, and, and keep pure of the world. We can remain unpolluted from the world, if you just stay within this verse, when we serve others. And so when we're focused on others, on those who have absolutely nothing to offer, those are who, who Christ is interested in, um, then, then we're going to stay unpolluted from the world. But if we're wrapped up in the world, uh, we might lose sight of, uh, of our real goal. So anyways, this is neither transformations nor detachments. It's kind of that middle ground I'm trying to talk about. Um, so when you hear a politician who, who appeals to your whatever it is, Christianity, you know, um, language, I think you should be wary of it. Um, government is always interested in maintaining control over its people and survival, whether it's the pitchforks and torches in the Middle Ages from the peasants um, to some kind of coup to today, well, I've got a four-year election cycle, what am I gonna do to get reelected? You know what I mean? Like, they're always interested in survival, and they're going to find ways to manipulate any of us, especially Christians, by saying the right things. So she should just, like I said, keep that eyebrow raised sometimes when you, when you read stuff. Um, I think we're most successful, and the book augurs for this, when Christians accept minority status in the world. We have no privilege. Um, when we embrace the role of the exile that we're called to be, um, and when we see the church as salt and light um, to the world, not in control of it. And that removes us from all those political, like, tight groups that we get wound up in when we're complicit with state violence or, or, or repression of people that is absolutely counter to the kingdom that we read about in the Bible that Jesus taught us. Um, think about John the Baptist. Um, he spoke truth from a position of political autonomy. He told the tax collectors, be honest. Don't take more than what you, what you need. He told soldiers, don't tie up load or don't uh, extort people or don't, you know, lie for, for money in court. He told the Pharisees, be good people. Stop being who you are. He spoke truth to people in, a, in political authority from an independent position. And that's what that middle ground, that prophetic witness calls us to be. Um, you know, in the words of Jesus here, if the world hates you, it hated him. Um, if you belong to the world, it would love you. And this is just kind of reminding us, if the world loves us and loves everything we're doing, are we really doing what Jesus called us to be? I don't know. It's just a, it's a good check. Um, prophetic witness, this middle ground, rejects political claims as they tend to lead to dominance and oppression, which is the very thing Jesus and a lot of the Old Testament prophets um, condemned in their, in their teaching. So we'll wrap up this last slide here. Um, so how should we really live in light of this? You know, here's some biblical things we're, we're told to pray for our leaders, even the ones we don't like. I guess it doesn't say to pray for even the ones you don't like. I put that on there, but, um, you know, that's, that's something that we need to, we need to do because it, in a way it causes you to submit to, to, uh, to your leader, um, respect and obey our leaders, pay our taxes, be, you know, be, in, um, who, who, uh, be a good citizen is basically what Paul's saying. And then, um, it's okay, and you look at the way Paul used his Roman citizenship um, and his appeal process to Caesar um, to bring light to injustice. When the system is broken, Paul didn't shy away from doing that, and we shouldn't either. We, we do have a lot of rights in this country, which is great, but don't let that um, become our controlling influence. Well, we have to protect our rights. Well, we can use them to help people see Jesus. 
Um, so anyways, last, last of all, just don't be consumed by the things, um, the cares of this world, the political concerns, who's going to be elected, who isn't, it just doesn't matter. Um, and ultimately, you know, if, you, if you're kind of sitting there and you're thinking, man, you know, am I wrapped up in, in, what, is, in what is political or is what I'm wrapped up in Jesus? Um, we're, we're known by our fruits. So, you know, tomorrow or something, just be like, hey, well, just take a friend and say, do I focus more on Jesus? Like, what's the language that comes out of me? Is it more about Jesus or is it more about the political earthly concerns of this kingdom that's here? And it's just a, it's just a good check. Um, so that's, that's my thoughts. I hope it's been helpful. Um, don't, um, I'm trying to think of, what time is it? It's time for me to stop talking. So anyways, I hope that's, that's all good. Um, if you have some need, you know, let, just come to the front now um, and we can, we can pray for you or whatever. Uh, thank you. No song. The kingdoms of earth pass away one by one, but the kingdom of heaven remains. It is built on a rock, and the Lord is his king, and forever and ever he reigns. It just ends, it just ends forever. It just stands forever and ever. Amen and amen. The tempest may rage and its anger, torrents may roar, and the strong gates of hell may assail it in vain. Kingdoms just and evermore. It just stands, it just stands forever and ever and ever. It just stands, it just stands forever and ever. Amen and amen. The Father, we come to you in this hour of prayer the close of this service. Thanking you for you for all of our many blessings, Lord. And we thank you for this lesson that Brother Raymond has brought to us. I know we, that we apply it to our lives. And 
not to focus on the physical kingdom to come, but your kingdom, Lord, that will last forever. Be with those who are sick and not able to be with us, Lord. Uh, Their names were mentioned. Grant them a full portion of health and bring them back to us. Lord, be with uh, Matthew Monday and continue his recovery, Lord, and we're grateful for 